Welcome, welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Towson, and this is the Tech Strategy Podcast, where we analyze the best digital businesses of the U.S., China, and Asia. And the topic for today, why prediction and machine learning are not competitive advantages yet. And I've been struggling with this for a while. I'll kind of explain why. Um, it's such a powerful thing. It's such a huge capability. But is it going to be something that creates tremendous value for a company? Or is most of that value going to be passed on to customers and it'll just be business as usual in companies? Which is usually what happens. Usually when a new technology comes along, everybody adopts it. All the value gets passed on to the consumers and then or customers and then... You know, the business looks pretty much the same. It's in the rare cases where it creates something new and powerful for the business. So that'll be the question for today. And my working answer is obviously no. It doesn't create a competitive advantage yet. But it does do some important things, and I'll detail what those are. So that'll be the topic for today. Uh, For those of you who are subscribers, I sent you um, an email about this uh, yesterday. It was kind of theoretical. Uh, I'm still trying to get my brain around it. And um, I'm basically, here's, I mean, here's the reason I'm doing it. I'm looking for companies that are building this technology aggressively where I think it's really going to play out in the future, but people don't see it yet. So I'm kind of trying to get ahead of the curve on this one. So I sent you a kind of a theoretical argument about that one, um, which is really me thinking out loud, actually. Um, so I probably won't I'll do one more on rate of learning, which will be similar. But machine and rate of learning, I put both of those in this same bucket. Uh, Let's see, other stuff to talk. uh, The China Tech Tour uh, coming up in three months in China. Uh, Beijing, Hangzhou, Shanghai, a lot of digital content, a lot of strategy stuff, visiting some cool companies. As of last night, China tourist visas are back online. We pretty much knew this was going to happen in theory, uh, but it did get announced. So in a couple, March 15th-ish, um, that's all regular again. And if you had a visa before, which you know I did, those have been halted, but now they're active again. So if you had an old one that's not expired, that works. So anyways, the door's open. Everything looks good. That's going to be in June. If you're interested, send me a quick email at info at Group.com. Go to the website, Tecmo Consulting. You'll see it there. Uh, that's going to be awesome. <laughs> okay. What else? I think that's it. Standard disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast or my writing or website is investment advice. The numbers information for me and any guests may be incorrect. The views and opinions expressed may no longer be relevant or accurate. Overall, investing is risky. This is not investment advice. Do your own research. And with that, let's get into the content. Now, as always, we start with the sort of the key concepts uh, that are always in the concept library on the webpage, jefftowson.com. And we've got a new one today, which I haven't talked about before, but it, it's actually becoming a, a significant part of the next Moats and Marathons book, which is going to be a short speed read for executives. And that's uh, what I'm calling CRAs which stands for Capabilities, Resources, and Assets. And it's this idea of in-between operating activities. Hey, we're opening stores. Hey, we're managing stores. Hey, we're doing customer relationship management. Um, And let's say competitive advantages. Uh, You're basically building assets. 
and you're building capabilities and you're building resources. A couple weeks ago, I talked about intangible assets as kind of this key thing in the digital world. That's really the link between those. If you're in the business of building stores, your Walmart, that's your primary activity, building, managing stores. Along the way, as you go, you will start to build assets, in this case, tangible assets, stores, operational footprint, retail, supply chain. And then the next phase is that starts to become, in some cases, a competitive advantage. Usually when people talk about competitive advantage, the flip side of that coin is the picture of resources. And this is often called resource-based competition. Uh, but in the digital world, we don't talk about that as much because we're not talking about tangible assets. We're talking about intangibles. Um, and we're talking about capabilities. And we're talking about resources like I have data. That would be kind of a resource. So the linkage between sort of operating activities as you do operating activities, they create CRAs over time. And I'm trying to develop more clear pictures of those for digital businesses. Um, the same way if we were looking at a Walmart, we'd be really focused on their warehouses and stores as their tangible assets. Uh, so there's kind of that linkage in between there. And that's kind of the idea for today, CRAs. Um, now... I'm going to put a, a, I'll put a slide of that in the show notes, which is on the webpage. It doesn't show up in iTunes. Oh, and by the way, this podcast is on Spotify now. Uh, I gave in and put it up there because everyone kept asking for it. Um, you know, I put my sort of six levels, my standard pyramid chart. And, you know, we talk a lot about operating activities. Now, if we're talking about traditional businesses, pretty straightforward. We all, I mean, we would, we would talk about a Michael Porter value chain, and I'll put that slide in the notes too, which is sort of a value chain from left to right. On the left, it's like supply chain management, and then it's, you know, production, and then it's inventory management, and then it's distribution, and then it's retail, and then it's marketing, and then it's customer service. It's like this left to right chain of activities. Uh, and that's how most businesses are. You have five to six key operating activities. Um, and then out of those operating activities, you start to create capabilities, resources, and assets. Suddenly, you got five factories. Suddenly, you got trucks everywhere. Suddenly, you're really good at marketing because you have a whole team. That would be more of a capability as opposed to an asset. So out of these operating activities, you start to build CRAs over time. And traditionally, business has been a, a game of scale. Whoever had the biggest scale usually won. The bigger factories beat the small factories. The big retailers beat the small retailers. The big bank beats the small banks. Well, when we're talking about big, yeah, we're talking about customers and volume of activity, but we're, we're talking about CRAs. You know, we have, we're a major bank. We have hundreds of branches. This is a regional bank. It's got five. Okay, so operating activities sort of naturally build you CRAs. Um, and then the next level up is... And this is sort of my thinking, which is sometimes those CRA, sometimes those operating activities can become marathons, right? That's on my, my sixth level. Sometimes, yes, it's an operating activity, you're opening stores, but you're so good at it and you've been doing it so consistently and it's so cumulative that you build an operating advantage versus your competitor. And that's what I've been describing as digital marathons. And I think that's a serious advantage you can have. 
Um, so sometimes your operating activities get you a marathon type advantage, which is an operating advantage. It's not a structural advantage. And also sometimes as you accumulate CRAs, you start to get a structural advantage. That's a moat. That's a competitive advantage. That's a barrier to entry. And if you look at my chart, which is in the notes, you'll see that sort of operating activities then can be increased uh, marathons. Then you see CRAs, which I'm putting in there. And then you see barriers to entry and then you see competitive advantage. That's how you kind of move up the chain. And that all makes good sense when you're talking about Walmart stores, right? Um, okay, but when you start to go into digital, one, it gets a little more complicated because suddenly it's harder to see the capabilities. It's harder to see the resources and assets. Most of the key assets are intangibles. You have a social network. That's an intangible asset. You have a lot of data. can sometimes be a resource. Uh, you have good engagement with your customers. Those things can all be sort of intangible assets. And I gave you a framework for classifying those types of intangible assets. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but they're harder to see the CRAs. Okay, so the question I've been struggling with now that I'm finally getting to the point is prediction. Really, there's two activities, operating activities, which I'm trying to sort of put into this framework. Like just the same way inventory management is an activity, Production is an activity. Supply chain management is an activity. Prediction is an activity. It's an operating activity. Uh, we could put it very easily in the Michael Porter value chain, prediction. The other one we can put in there is rate of learning. That some companies like fashion companies, Shein, Timu, they're so fast at learning about what people want and what the market, that's an activity. Right, so those are operating activities, but they're different than any operating activities we've seen before because they're sort of new technologies that are letting this happen. So I'm sort of putting those activities into the operating chain, uh, which is straightforward. But then the question is, at what point do those become competitive? Can they become competitive advantages the same way having all those operating stores can become a competitive advantage? So can these two new operating activities, what CRAs do they create, and then can they become barriers to entry and competitive edge? That's what I'm looking for, because if I can see someone who's real good at this, I ain't gonna know in a year or two, they're gonna have a competitive edge others don't have. That's kind of what I'm looking for. Anyways, that's a bit of theory, but CRAs are kind of the, the linkage between operating activities and structural advantages. That's how I think about them. And you can look at the chart. I think it makes pretty good sense in that chart. Okay, so that's kind of the where I'm starting with this. Um, and I'll give you my working answer and then I'll talk through how I got there. But I could be wrong. I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. Uh, when I look at prediction, which is machine learning, you know, it's, it's really important, obviously. Uh, and we've talked about prediction. Machine learning basically is cheap and fast prediction. And you could argue now that machine learning is also cheap and fast content creation, which is generative AI. But it's all basically predicting what people are going to want, predicting the right answer, predicting what word comes next, predicting, you know, it's all prediction, prediction, prediction. Um, my working answer is machine learning and prediction 
is a core operating activity. So it's in my digital operating basics. It's all throughout that. And in some cases, it can rise to become a digital marathon. I think TikTok has it. I think TikTok is so good at prediction that they can keep rolling out new types of content, short video, news headlines, videos, games. And they're so good at predicting matching of what you want to see uh, that they're like the marathon runner who's a mile down the road. So I think in that case, we've seen examples of this becoming an operating advantage. I think it is absolutely creating new types of CRAs. I think this is a new type of capability to be incredibly good at prediction because that requires a couple things, not just algorithms, it requires data and it requires talent, which is actually the hard part. So we're seeing new CRAs. I think in some rare cases it can create a barrier to entry. It's a hard to replicate capability, especially getting the people. Most small retailers can't get a lot of AI people. However, I think that is a barrier to entry is going to get wiped out pretty fast. I think these Snowflake and AWS and Google, they're going to offer that to everybody very cheap. So I suspect the barrier to entry which exists today is going to get wiped out, and I don't see the competitive advantage yet, but I'm looking for it. That's kind of where my working solution, my working sort of conclusion is right now. Um, so let me give you sort of how I got there. Uh, all right. So there's two things I think we don't know about prediction AI centered businesses where this is the core activity of what they do. I mean, Walmart's core activity is opening and managing stores. That's it. There are certain businesses like TikTok, like uh, not really Shein, Quive Show is definitely doing this, where their core activity is AI, SenseTime, MegV. Um, that is what they do. A lot of these generative AI companies, ChatGPT, that is all they do is prediction. It's not just one of their 10 activities, it's the main one. So we look for businesses like that. I think there's two things we don't know about them yet. We don't know what their ultimate economics is gonna look like. Um, and I'll give you my standard analogy for this, which I've sent out to those of you who are subscribers in the last day, which I always consider it hospitals versus shopping malls. I'll explain that in a minute. And we don't know at what point prediction as a CRA, a key capability and resource, becomes a structural advantage. So far, I don't see it, but I'm looking for it. Okay, so my standard analogy is the difference between a software business and a AI business, the difference between Adobe, which is traditional software, and let's say MegV, SenseTime, GPT, uh, it's the difference between like a hospital, I'm sorry, a shopping mall and a hospital. Um, AI businesses are much messier. Software businesses, you write the code, video game. You write all the code, you tell it exactly what's going to happen in every event. Well, not multiplayer, but simple standard like Atari old games. You know, if you do this, this is what happens. You write all the rules, right? AI is a lot more messy because we've got to ingest a bunch of data that's coming in in real time. The data's messy. It has to be cleaned. It has to be tagged. Then the AI makes predictions. And you generally need a lot of people to do that. So 
you know, traditional software economics is pretty beautiful. You know, Windows, Adobe, these companies, Microsoft. AI businesses, the economics are a lot closer to software plus a lot of services because you got to do all this human labor to make it keep functioning. So the economics don't look as good. Um, but the analogy I use is, you know, if you run a hospital, which I used to do for a, you know, a year or so, I was a sort of turnaround CEO of a hospital, um, which was really not a fun job. I didn't enjoy it. I liked the turnaround bit because when you turn around a hospital, it was basically broke. People were quitting. The suppliers had cut us off from everything from consumables to sutures. And so I'm, you know, I'm running around town in a car at 2 a.m. delivering labs because the laboratory we're using has cut us off because they think we're a cash risk. Uh, I like the turnaround bit because it's like being a trauma surgeon. You know, you have to jump in and nothing works and you got to sort of save the patient, which is really fun. Uh, but then once you fix it, running the business was pretty boring. It was just operational day to day. You're doing the same stuff. And what I didn't like about it. Uh, was you had almost no control. Like, how much am I going to spend this month to run the hospital? I have no idea. Literally, you have no idea. Because you don't, as CEO, spend the money. The doctors spend the money. The surgeons spend the money. The pharmacy spends the money. How many sutures did they use? What kind of, uh, you know, surgical drapes did they use? Um... How many doctors do I have on staff? Well, you have to have them on staff all the time. And they have to be there at 2 a.m. Because if someone walks into the ER with a gunshot wound, you have to be able to handle that. And if a pregnant woman walks in who we've never seen before and starts to give birth in the clinic, which happens, we've got to have people for that. Oh, and by the way, if she has high blood pressure and cardiac problems, we have to have a cardiac surgeon or cardiologist on staff. You are basically responsible for anything that the external world throws at you and shows up. If there's a pandemic in town and everyone starts getting viruses, they all come to the hospital. You got to have ventilators. You got to have a storage of ventilators somewhere across town that you can uh, access, which smart hospitals had during the pandemic. Um, you have to have certain parts. So you really control nothing. Like being the CEO of a hospital is like driving a car with no steering wheel. I can't cut the costs. I can't remove staff. I can't decrease staff. I can't close departments. You got to have it all running because we are facing the external, messy, real world of how people get sick, what happens in society, violence, all of it. And so you're really on the receiving end. Now, that is very different. And that's, that's a lot. My point is that's a lot like being an AI business. That if you've got what Elon Musk calls real-world AI, where you're sending a car down the street, it can encounter anything. It can encounter a dog running across the street. It can encounter, I don't know, uh, a, some lumber falls off a building, uh, falls off a car in front of you and bounces across the street. It can encounter potholes. It can encounter gang warfare. Who knows? But the AI basically has to be able to respond to everything in the real world. And he kind of said this uh, at an interview about six months ago, which was really interesting. They asked him, how did, you, how did you get your cars to run? And he said it basically required us to solve the problem of real world AI. 
we couldn't just develop AI that could drive a car because the cars are out in the world and they can encounter anything. And therefore, the AI had to effectively be trained to encounter everything in the real world, which he called real world AI. And that's why he can then take his AI from his cars and put them into trucks or put them into robots or put them into anything because they've all been trained to sort of navigate your house, the street, whatever. That's a lot like a hospital. You are really on the receiving end of data coming in and you just have to respond. And that's a very different business model and the economics are very different and they're usually less attractive. Okay, so that's kind of like how AI businesses are like running sort of a hospital. The, the counter analogy is software businesses like Adobe, Microsoft Word, a lot of old video games. That's like running a shopping mall, which I also did. I was sort of overseeing general manager of a high-end shopping mall. We had Gucci stores and Saks Fifth Avenue and uh, Marks and Spencer and Coach and a food court. There was a Saks, uh, there was a Four Seasons Hotel upstairs, which was awesome, by the way. I got to stay there a lot. Um, now, this is a world that we created. This is not the real world. This is a world created by business people. We controlled everything. We designed the layout. Well, I didn't. It was done by the time I get there. But I decided the staffing, how many security guards, what kind of lights we're going to use, who's going to be in the food court, who's not going to be in the food court. I determined what hours we opened, what hours we closed. You know, 2 a.m., we're not open. I don't have to worry about random patients coming into the ER at 2 a.m. Therefore, I have to be staffed up and ready to go. No, we closed. 9 at 9, at 9 p.m., we're closed. That's it. See you tomorrow at 10 a.m. We controlled the entire environment um, so we could decide what business off services we wanted to offer and what ones we didn't and what problems we wanted to solve and what ones we didn't. Um, you know, it was a business world as opposed to the real world. Much cleaner. Um, and the economics, we could choose. We don't really want to be in the food court business. Food court doesn't make that much money. Um, so we would... You know, we'd, we'd contract for that bit, but you want to own the anchor stores, the Marks and Spencer, um, the Saks Fifth Avenue. That's where you make a lot of money. So we want to own those, but we would contract out the other stuff. Four Seasons made a lot of money, too. Well, not a lot of money. It wasn't actually that profitable overall. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like that. That's a lot more like doing engineering and doing basic software. The other is a lot more like doing science where you're studying the real world. And you can see that sort of play out um, in the analytic and in the economics and things like that. So that's kind of how I do it. Um, now, in between there, there's a bit of a middle ground. TikTok is an AI-based company, but TikTok is not doing too much real-world AI. You load up the videos. When you load up the videos, you tag them for TikTok. So a lot of the problem is sort of taken care of, and then they control the app where you know one person watches and one person loads the video. So a lot of that is kind of like the shopping mall. They really do control it. It's not a car going out driving around Bangkok, right? And who knows what it's going to encounter. So it's, it's much more controlled. Now, understanding the content of a video is actually fairly difficult because it can be anything. It be people dancing. It can be so. There is a bit of real world embedded in the content of the videos, but it's sort of half controlled, half not. 
if you have robo taxis um, or robotic um, trains working within a business park, okay, I mean, it's out in the real world, but you designed the business park. So you controlled the roads, you controlled what's there, you put up signs that are easy for the AI to recognize. And this is what China is doing. They're building entire cities. Uh, there's a huge one to the south of Beijing where they're making all the infrastructure, the roads, the signs, all of that to be sort of easy for AI to navigate. Not the, you know, most cities have evolved over hundreds of years, so they're very, very messy. You know, your typical London city is a nightmare. The roads are curvy and they evolved, you know, they evolved over a hundred years because that's where the cows used to walk and, you know. But if you design a city from scratch, you can make it much more like the business park or the shopping mall. And it's easier for the AI to recognize and operate. So there's a, there's a bit of a middle ground there you can think about. Okay, so that's kind of how I take all this apart um, in terms of, you know, those are sort of my analogies. Now let me sort of go through the steps of how I decide whether this is a competitive advantage. So uh, I'll put a slide in the notes, which is basically, I mean, it's kind of my key slide, which is there are six levels that I look at for digital strategy and for competition. And then on the left of this slide, there's all these new technologies I've put in red. And that's really the question, like how do these new technologies, which keep working, which keep emerging, new business models, new tools, new tech, how do they impact each of those levels? And that's sort of my process. So I look at something like machine learning, and then I try and figure out how does it impact each of those six levels. And I, I find this sort of granular approach really works. I find it really gives me some, often, some real visibility into what's going to happen here and what isn't. Um, not always, but I, I find it pretty, I find it works most of the time. Okay, so let's say the new digital tool track uh, trend business model is machine learning and prediction. How does that sort of impact, you know, each level? And I've broken each one of those levels into its subcomponents. Like if you look at competitive advantages, I've, I've listed 16. If you look at digital marathons, I've listed five. If you look at digital operating basics, there's seven subparts. And you can kind of just sort of, this is literally all I do to try and predict uh, what's going to happen. So tactics and digital operating basics, the bottom two levels. Um, yeah, I think machine learning is all throughout there. All throughout there. Like, you know, you meet with a retailer, you meet with a, a media company. They need to be putting AI into everything all of their levels um, and some are going to be more important than others uh, if you ask Alibaba what are you using AI for which we've asked they'll say everything okay not true well yes it is true but no not really I mean then you push them on the question which we did and they will say okay it's mostly about logistics and inventory and demand projection that's what they're doing they're predicting actively what people are going to buy later today, tomorrow, in every city, every consumer, every sort of district. And that's giving them very detailed demand projection estimates. And then based on that, they're shifting their inventory around in real time and making sure they have certain things in certain warehouses so that they can you know, rapidly meet that demand. That's, what, that's the sort of big gun in this. Now, outside of that, they're, they're putting in everything. And you can kind of go through businesses 
and decide when it matters. Um, now, if you're a digital business from the get-go, like TikTok or Kwai Show, uh, okay, your core activity is prediction. Uh, and, other, and you can kind of go through there and see where it matters. Uh, fine. I don't generally consider any of that to be a, a source of competitive strength. I just think it's an operating requirement. It's table stakes. You've all got to have it. Just like everyone's got to, you know, if you're an e-commerce site or a retailer, you've got to be doing digital marketing. You just have to. Doesn't necessarily, you can be better at it than others, but yeah, it's generally not a source of long-term strength. You might do well for a couple years because, you know, a company like Shein or a company like Perfect Diary was better than L'Oreal at digital marketing, but then L'Oreal caught up. This was in China, right? And Okay, fine. We move to the next level, which is digital marathons. This is where I think absolutely we're starting to see certain machine learning companies establish serious operating advantages. And it's one of my five sort of digital marathons, S-M-I-L-E. The M stands for machine learning, zero human operations. Um, this was absolutely what Ant Financial is going for. They are trying to run a digital marathon in machine learning so that they're a digital-only bank. That was their playbook, uh, which they're still doing. Uh, TikTok is definitely moving that direction. Uh, we can see certain companies that are so far ahead uh, in terms of their operating activities there that unless they really screw it up, it's unclear that other companies will ever catch them. I mean, the other companies will advance. They will just, you know, that's why I use the marathon analogy. This is the marathon runner who's over the horizon. Now, he could fall down. Okay, then you might catch them. But assuming they don't mess up, they are going to have a persistent operating advantage. So I think we can definitely see it there. Absolutely true. We move up to the next level, which is CRAs, which sits sort of between capabilities, resources, and assets. Do we see companies that are doing so well in their operating activities in machine learning that they are starting to build sizable assets, resources, capabilities in this area? Well, what are the CRAs that matter? Well, there's three. There's algorithms, there's data, and there's people. Those are the resources you need to do prediction. Okay. Are you going to have a real advantage in algorithms? Probably not. Um, most of the algorithms most of the people are using are pretty standard. Uh, what's really making them better or worse is the data. Who's got more data? Who's got better data? Who's got data that's hard to access? Uh, if you are in medical care, um, you know, data is much, you can't just go to public databases of people's chest x-rays, right? I mean, that stuff is controlled, uh, especially in the U.S. If you have a walled garden like Tencent or Facebook, they're not going to let others just take all their data and feed it into algorithms on a daily basis to provide a service. They might, they might create some APIs, but that data is, is held there. Um, that could be pretty powerful. We could see certain companies getting walled gardens of data um, or data that's rare. And that's something I'm keeping an eye on. Uh, I'm not super optimistic that's going to happen. I think keeping data is too easy to move around. 
I think there might be some rare exceptions where data can be sort of walled and you have a resource that others don't have, CRA. Um, I think most of it's going to end up being sort of ubiquitous. Uh, I think these companies like Google, uh, Cloud, AWS, Azure, Snowflake, I mean, one of the things they're doing, which I talked about a year ago, is yes, they're providing data and digital services. The other thing they're doing is creating data marketplaces. So they actually have multiple platform business models. And one of the things Snowflake is doing is creating a data marketplace. So if you have data, you can sell it to others and make money and you can buy data from others. So I think that's going to be a hard one to do. But we could see some rare companies where they've got some real advantages as data. And then the one that is clearly the bottleneck right now is human talent to do algorithms and to do machine learning and to do AI and to build real capabilities um, because these businesses, I mean, these capabilities do not run on their own like software where you build it and deploy it and it runs. You're almost always having people tweaking the algorithm, cleaning the data, checking the data. As kind of mentioned, you need people involved. Um, and there's very few people that understand this stuff and most of them they go where they want in life. They want to work at Google. They want to work at Alibaba. If you're a specialty supermarket in Mexico, it is very hard and almost impossible for you to get machine learning people. You're going to deal with contractors. So this is the great limiting resource right now. So if I was going to sort of, okay, that's the CRA picture. We go to the next level, which is barriers to entry, which is a structural advantage, and then above that is competitive advantage. That's where I like. That's where I like companies to live is competitive advantage. Um, you could argue that there is a barrier to entry right now for most companies to build significant prediction capabilities because you can't get the people. I think that's true. Um, so I would say, yes, we've got a digital marathon. Yes, we've got a barrier to entry right now, but I think the barrier to entry is going away. I think there's a lot of companies like Snowflake that are in the business of solving that problem for businesses. And um, so I don't think that's going to be a, a long-term barrier. And then we get to competitive advantage, which I've listed 16, customer capture, economies of scale. I don't see it yet. I don't see this playing out yet. Um, so that's kind of where I am. Um, I think it's a digital marathon for some companies. I think it's an operating requirement for most all of them. I think it's a short-term barrier to entry, but it's going to go away. That's kind of where I am. Now, one last point, and then I'll finish up. Within all of this, you hear a couple ideas floating around frequently, which are the idea of a data network effect, and you hear the idea of a data competitive advantage. They say, hey, if you have data, you get a competitive advantage. If you have more users, they provide you more data. You then use that data to create a better service. Therefore, your service is always better. Data network effect. I don't really buy it. Um, I think that's just standard personalization. Um, and, when, and then they said, well, okay, let's say that's nonsense, which I think most people think it's nonsense. But three years ago, everyone talked about that. I think that idea is pretty much gone. Um, the other one is, okay, it's not a data network effect, but you have a data advantage. It's a competitive advantage based on having data, scale, lower cost. Um, 
I don't really buy that one either. I don't buy it because I don't think anyone knows what the word data means. I think it's a it's an idea based on a fuzzy definition. It's like when five years ago, ten years ago, everyone talked about the sharing economy. Ooh, the sharing economy. It was an idea, and we were, then they would take that idea further and build business models. And there are even professors you meet who are like the professor of sharing economy. It's so you know, but you've actually asked people to sharing economy was kind of a half baked concept. Doesn't really make sense. You know, we think platforms. That's a way to think about. It. I think data is the same idea. I don't buy it as a concept. I don't know what it means. How do you build a business model and a framework based on a fuzzy definition? What isn't data in this world? Everything in a spreadsheet. Okay, that's what people usually think about. What about photos? What about videos? What about cameras on the street watching stuff? Isn't everything data? How do you, so, so when they talk about data, I don't know what it means. So I generally don't pay attention to it. I'm open to it, but I, I think it's a definition that's going to... It's a half-baked idea that's going to fade away. Anyways, that's kind of where I am on this right now. Um, so prediction is one. The other sort of new operating activity that I talk about is uh, rate of learning and adaptation. I think that's an entirely new capability operating activity as well. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, you can see that in my marathons, that's there as well. I'm sort of struggling with the same question there because I think that's, I think both of these are going to be huge activities over the next five to 10 years. The same way we would say, you know, opening and running stores was a huge idea in the past. Um, but I'm still sort of playing them out. So that's the other one I'm sort of struggling with right now. Anyways, that's where I am on this one. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, take a look at the charts I put in there and look at CRAs. Um, CRAs, when, when, you, when you do all this strategy stuff, here's the, here's the competitive advantage we're trying to build. Here's the marathon we're trying to run. That's a top-down CEO-level decision. Okay, fine. Once you've made that decision, the roadmap for executing that decision, for building that decision, the roadmap is your CRAs. That actually tells you, here's the assets we need to build over the next three years. So if, if your big strategy call is choosing a moat and choosing a marathon, hence moats and marathons, the roadmap that falls out of that decision is your CRA picture. The same way to say, like, you know, if we had an idea that we're going to be a big box retailer, that's your strategic decision. The roadmap would, that would fall out of that would be, and here's the stores we're going to open over the next two years. Same idea. So you want to detail the CRAs, and that basically gives you the roadmap. Okay, I think that is it for today for content. As for me, um, yeah, I'm pretty amped up, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I'm getting on a plane tonight. I'm going to sit on the beach for a couple days, which is, you know, that's always fun. It sort of amps me up. And, and also the China, Asia stuff, everything's just moving. Um, I got four trips into China planned. I mean, one of, I used to live in Beijing and Shanghai uh, for a long time. And then I kind of moved my home south to Thailand just for quality of life. But the idea was I would always just fly back and forth every week because it's a nothing little flight. But then that kind of got shut down with COVID. So now it's ramping back up. So, yeah, it's flights all over the place uh, for the next month, which is really uh, exciting. Uh, the next one I'm doing is end of this month. There's a big uh, Huawei annual event. Every year they release their 
their six-month and their year-end financials, and they have a big event. Um, so I'm flying into that in a couple weeks. I think the, the 28th, 29th, I'm going to be in Shenzhen, Dongguan, which is fantastic. The whole greater Bay Area of China, which is that southern region, Zhuhai, Guangzhou, uh, Shenzhen, Dongguan, fantastic. I mean, it is just this awesome economy that's being built there. So going into their headquarters, which is, you know, this is the fun part of my, I'm, I'm going to go to the event and it's kind of a big event because, um, you know, they have this funny, what kind of interesting management structure where they have rotating chairmen, chair people now, where um, usually it's been three to four people that rotate chairmen. Uh, it was Liang Hua's there. If you look up, you'll always see the same names, Liang Hua, Eric Xu, Ken Hu. And then it was Ping Guo, but he, he stepped down. And the new person is Sabrina Meng, uh, Meng Wenzhou, which if you've been following the news in the last couple of years, this is the daughter of the founder, Ren Zhengfei, who was under some sort of arrest house detention, something in Canada for two years. Well, she's back. She's now one of the rotating chairwomen, and she's also CFO. So I think she's going to be doing all the presentations. So it's kind of a big deal in terms of that. Uh, I don't usually follow the political stuff, if you can't tell, but uh, the financials are really interesting when they talk about them. Um, it's a really fascinating company. Uh, I've been following them for almost 12 years before it all became political, right? Um, and, you know, it's funny that, like, the telco equipment business, which is where they were founded and built, you know, building various equipment manufa manufacturing, selling it to carriers around the world, uh, British Telecom, Safaricom in the Middle East, all of, you know, Africa, all this stuff. That was their business. And it it was never a great business. And even the founder, you know, Ren Zhengfei, he even jokes about, like, if we knew what a bad business and a hard business is one, I wouldn't have chosen this. <laughs> but because it's such a difficult business, they built in response a tremendously effective culture. I mean, they have an absolutely dominant corporate culture, staffing culture. I mean, you do not want to compete with a team from Huawei. You just don't want to do it. And it's funny that these things go hand in hand. Like if you choose a bis bad business, you got to become unbelievably good at execution to survive. As opposed to if you build a really good business like Facebook, you tend to get really weak, ineffective management because life is so easy. It's kind of a fun trade-off. Uh, anyways, that's where they were. And then it turns out telecommunications equipment became dramatically more important because it, it basically became, hey, we'll set up your phone systems to the digital infrastructure for everything. So it became highly political. Uh, it became incredibly important. It's cloud, it's connectivity, it's edge computing, all of that. You know, that is the foundation of the next 20 to 30 years is digital infrastructure. And that's where they've ended up. Um, you know, so it's this really interesting company. But uh, apart from all the political stuff that they've been sort of sucked into, um, fascinating company. Like I would have invested five to 10 years ago if it was possible. Um, but, you know, now who knows? Anyway, so that's going to be the plan. And I'll, I'll do some writing and podcasting and maybe some videos from then. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. So excited. And then a couple more trips around uh, China, Asia. Anyways, that is it for me. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope this is helpful and I will talk to you next week.
Bye-bye.